Climate security means climate security nexus. Having a gender lens. Everyone who's affected. Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our mini-series on climate security, looking at the link between security and climate change top issues. I'm Sabrina Dao. And I'm Sofia Shevchuk. This series is a part of project led by Wise Brussels with the support of the U.S. mission to NATO. In this mini-series, we bring together diverse voices of women across the world leading discussion in climate security. Through their own expertise and experience, they share and debate their point of view on critical climate security issues. We hope you will enjoy this episode as much as we do. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're not talking only statistics and stories from the ground, but also setting some creative ideas and solutions on ensuring diversity at the decision-shaping and decision-making tables, which would lead to a holistic response to climate change, ensuring security for all of us. So my name is Laura Bazani. I'm a program manager uh, for the Mediterranean Policy Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, based in their Brussels office. Um, I also coordinate uh, GMF's climate cluster, and my most recent work uh, has been exploring the impact of the European Green Deal on the Mediterranean region. I am Madeline Babin. I am the Research Associate for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations based in Washington, D.C., where my work primarily focuses on the role of adaptation and resilience in the global effort to combat climate change. And within this, I stress the need to give equal consideration to both adaptation and mitigation efforts um, in order to effectively address the rising risks posed by a changing climate. And in this capacity, I also underscore the need to incorporate considerations of differential climate vulnerabilities, which result from a range of political, social, economic, and demographic factors into global climate policy. Hi, uh, my name is Elizabeth Smith. I am a research assistant with the um, Climate Change and Risk Program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI. Um, my research focuses on climate change, peace building, and gender. Uh, and in my latest publication, The Gender Dimensions of Climate Insecurity, I discuss the need to critically understand the different and interlinked experiences of diverse groups of men and women in the context of climate-related security risks, and to ensure the equal leadership and participation of all affected groups in addressing uh, these, the confluence of climate change and insecurity. Thank you for the introductions. I'm sure it will be a very interesting discussion today. With this, we move to the first question to set the tone for the whole podcast series and understand the basic idea of how climate change is actually connected to security. First question is, what do we refer to when we mention climate change and security nexus? Laura, you want to go first? Um, so with the climate security nexus or climate security, we refer to the security impact of um, climate change. Climate change in itself, the definition is the changes in temperatures and weather patterns as, for example, the natural alternation of uh, dry and, and wet uh, seasons and um, is in itself an environmental security issue, but it can also 
create or in intensify other types of environmental security issues, like, for example, pollution, deforestation, or natural disasters. Climate change is, uh, in general, um, a factor that directly or indirectly impacts or creates pressures on resources. And um, as such, it has consequences at the levels of both community uh, security and, and national and international security. Uh, at the community level, because obviously when climate change impacts um, resources such as water and food production that are um, essential for community livelihoods, this puts a lot of strain um, on communities and people. And at the same time, at the national and international level, when the cascading impacts of climate change overlap or intensify existing um, factors of tension and violence in society. So to give a concrete example, the conflict in Syria has been examined through the lenses of climate change and climate security, because in the 2000s, the country experienced very violent droughts that put a lot of pressure on rural communities that base their livelihoods on agriculture. By consequence of those pressures on security, there was a big wave of migration from rural areas towards urban areas in Syria, and that in turn put pressure on resources in those urban areas and in cities, which intensified tensions and created protests that then in the long term were met with a violent um, with a violent response from the government that resulted in a civil war uh, and then the civil war actually evolved into a much bigger conflict with geopolitical consequences that went beyond the country of Syria. So I think this case is a good example to understand the cascading effects of climate change, the role of climate change as a risk multiplier and um, how all-encompassing it can be. That was a fantastic explanation. And so just to echo some of what Laura mentioned, climate security, especially within the field of resilience and adaptation and focusing on ways to build preparatory measures and preparedness, as well as build people's ability to respond after a disaster strikes. Climate security really involves all of the disruptions to economic, social, and environmental systems that result from a changing climate that undermine human and state security. And so within this, it means climate security refers to both the security threats generated directly and indirectly by rising global average temperatures, which means it accounts for both the direct threats to a nation's security, which can arise from climate's impacts on military operations and preparedness related to sea level rise encroaching on military installations or extreme heat interfering with military planning and training and operations, as well as the indirect threats, meaning the way that climate acts as a threat multiplier to exacerbate pre-existing stressors and amplify the risk of conflict, violence, internal strife, resource scarcity, food insecurity, and migration as well as climate also creates new spheres of rivalry, such as we're seeing in the Arctic, where there are opening navigation routes for travel and trade in previously unexplored and undefined territories, as well as a plethora of new and untouched resources where states are going to increasingly be vying for a piece of that 
pie to, so to speak. So that is really, I think the overarching view of what climate security means and its impacts related to particularly resilience building and the need to bolster systems um, related to infrastructure, food sourcing, water security to our military operations to ensure that we can withstand those future unfamiliar and worsening risks to um, our climate. What do you think of it, Elizabeth? So I would uh, take the approach of saying that when we talk about climate change and security, it would pose a indirect risk to peace and security. And so I am going to use a quote from a 2021 publication from my colleague at CIPRI, Dr. Elisa Remling, that I think explains this pretty well. Um, and that is climate-related security risks are risks emerging from accelerating climate change to people's well-being and livelihoods that then may have implications for societal, economic, and political stability at local, national, regional, and international levels. So the concern is not just about vulnerability, human security, or people's well-being, or the immediate threat of violence or conflict, but more generally about the link between climate impacts, human security, and deteriorating social stability. So another way to think about that is maybe through the idea of um, quote-unquote pathways. So past CIPRI research on East Africa, West Africa, and Southeast Asia have ident has identified four interrelated um, pathways, which are livelihood deterioration, increasing migration and changing mobility patterns, tactical consideration by armed groups, and then elite exploitation and resource management, through which climate change can increase risks to peace and security. So, for example, if climate change contributes to worsening livelihood conditions, this may then contribute to grievances and marginalization for different affected groups, or potentially increase the vulnerability of people to recruitment by armed groups should they have no alternative in income sources. So that's an example of the pathway approach. Thank you, Elizabeth. I see that Laura has a comment on that. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, I just want to jump in to echo some of what Madeleine and Elizabeth said uh, and to also address kind of the other side of this question, which is maybe about the solution or kind of not defining the problem of climate and security, but how do we respond in security terms to the threats that climate change might pose? I think what Madeleine said about resilience and the pathways that Elizabeth mentioned as well, kind of point to the fact that in order to address the consequences, the security impacts of climate change, uh, we need to think about security in a different way than the traditional security mindsets. And I think we need to adopt a much more holistic and a systemic view to climate and security that includes uh, mitigation and adaptation strategies, um, but also that creates new structures and institutions and systems that are non-extractive, that are regenerative and restorative, and that not only um, counter the security impact of climate change, but also make sure that nature is protected and can act as a security shield to people and actually increase human security. Laura, you just mentioned the need for a holistic and systemic approach to bring concrete sustainable solutions to the table. It is known that a gender approach to climate issues is paramount. You might all agree, but can you tell us why it is crucial to adopt a gender lens when tackling the nexus between climate change and security? According to you, 
why do we need not only diverse women voices, but also underrepresented voices on this topic? Um, so I think overall, there's been scores of research that have demonstrated the vitality and the significance of incorporating women's voices into discussions of climate and particularly related to climate security. At the national level, research has shown that countries with high representation of women in national governments and parliaments are more likely to ratify international environmental treaties, to create protected areas, and to have overall stricter climate policies. At a subnational and local level, broader participation of women in Resource management has been associated with better resource management, with better outcomes for conservation, with stricter measures, with more sustainable practices and rulemaking, with greater compliance and transparency and accountability. And this transitions and transfers over as well into the corporate field, where there have been studies that have demonstrated that women's leadership is associated with increased transparency around climate impacts, which leads to increased levels of disclosures related to climate change about those companies' risks related to climate change, which overall bolsters financial and corporate resilience and leads to better outcomes for businesses and broader economic security. So all around, there has been this reinforcement of the importance of incorporating more diverse and particularly equity of gender within conversations about climate and climate risks and security and ways to bolster human security. I think there's also, you know, another layer related to women's broader roles within society that actually those unique experiences that women often have and that have often been seen as a hindrance related to women's traditional gender roles being the primary gatherer of resources and predominantly responsible for the larger share of unpaid labor, such as gathering water or food. This also positions them as crucial agents of climate action. The fact that women make up approximately 70% of small shareholder farmers in Africa and usually collect household water positions them with this crucial knowledge related to best stewardship practices, water systems at a local level, agricultural trends, that when this knowledge is incorporated into decision-making and policy-making, it leads to better outcomes that reduce collective vulnerabilities and strengthen broader security overall. So I would start also by saying that gender, it's about power, right? So it can be understood as the social attributes, norms, attitudes considered normal or acceptable for people with different sex characteristics in a certain society at a given time. And so it can influence and uphold power dynamics between different groups of people, which can then lead to different impacts and outcomes for different female, male, and non-binary gender identities in the same settings. And then other identity characteristics, including um, ethnicity, class, disability, sexual orientation can also further compound potential inequalities uh, different individuals already experience on the basis of gender. Um, so as Madeline uh, very rightly said, um, gender roles, norms can contribute to certain knowledge and really crucial knowledge that um, women may have, different groups of women may have in addressing um, environmental changes uh, that is um, imperative to have leadership roles and discussions. It's also important to take a gender lens in, towards approaching uh, climate change and security 
as different inequalities and expectations can contribute to different risks for different groups of men and women. So say, for example, it should gender norms and power structures contribute to uh, shaping how different groups of people can influence access to information, economic resources, including land and credit or their mobility. This can affect how well or what challenges people may face in adapting or recovering to environmental changes. And for example, um, should women have unequal access to land or other economic resources, this can not only challenge their individual adaptation, but that of their broader households and households and communities due to the crucial roles that they play in um, ensuring household food security, for example. Um, and in other contexts, men may experience risks related to climate change uh, due to their ascribed gender roles of migration in search of economic opportunities. And uh, this may lead to human security risks for them during their migration, which may include being trafficked or being exposed to violence. So taking a gender, a gender lens approach to addressing climate change and potential security risks, I think is really crucial because otherwise you might be missing the specific needs and experiences that different people are going to have. In my opinion, the conversation about having a gendered lens uh, and, and examining the gendered impact of climate change and the issue of representation are two different issues that I personally like to address as two different issues and two separate issues for a very specific reason. I think that from a sociological and anthropological point of view, it's absolutely crucial to understand the gender, like the, the gendered impact of climate change for the reasons um, that Madeleine and Elizabeth has outlined, have outlined. And I believe that this is extremely important material to make informed policy decisions and to intervene in specific circumstances, especially at the level of communities. Um, at the same time, when it comes to understanding or responding to the question that I often hear asked about why should women be involved in climate conversations, then my perspective um, shift a bit. And I actually would like to flag the work of a researcher, uh, Dr. Sima Aurora Johnson from the Swedish University of Agricultural Science, because she has been examining the way that women have been portrayed and kind of the narratives that have been created uh, throughout the years about women and climate change. And she has seen how often women are kind of presented through ideotypes. So the women, especially in the global South, are presented often as vulnerable people, the most vulnerable among the vulnerable, and they often are as such. And uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, women in the global North are described as more virtuous than men, for example, and like working closer to nature, being much more uh, interested and sensitive to climate change. Um, and she actually looks at the, 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 the data that backs up these, uh, these narratives and she finds out that uh, the data doesn't always confirm those findings and that often these narratives have been used as a way to make sure, especially in the 70s and the 80s at the beginning of the environmentalist movement, to make sure that women were included in the conversation um, and to kind of find justifications to make sure that it's okay that women sit at the table. And um, so I just wanted to conclude 
included from my point of view as a political scientist i don't need to answer why women should be at the table and why should women make decisions when it comes to climate change because i think that women should always be at the table and should always be making decisions when it comes to the management of our society because they are active members of our societies in different roles so it's very hard to put women into stereotypes and it shouldn't be that way um, and we actually need a much more granular understanding of gendered impact of climate change and we do need women at the table just because they are people that should be making decisions thank you both there are two important comments i want to make after what you just said I love that we straight away started the discussion by talking about women as leaders rather than putting them, us, in victim mode, which often happens in such discussions. Lastly, as Elizabeth and all of you mentioned, we have to include diverse voices in the discussions because climate change is a holistic and complex problem. And if we fail to apply gender lens in our response to it today, we'll basically create more problems for ourselves in future. With this, let's move to the next question. What is the state of affairs right now? From your experience, your background, what is the representation of women in climate security in your area? So I am most familiar with this in the view of the recent COP26 and the UNFCCC, which is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And at COP26, there was actually a notable lack of women's representation as historically has also been the case. It is not a new phenomenon, uh, particularly at the highest levels of the 140 heads of delegations present at the meeting, 10 were women. Um, and within that, the UNFCCC has done a lot of research on its gender parity in different um, subsidiary bodies. And it found that just about a third of all of those who are members of uh, UNFCCC's constituted bodies, which is essentially, it refers to the subsidiary bodies and these, just about a third of all of those positions are held by women. They have also noted that as you get into higher positions, which usually correlates uh, with the experience and seniority, that also tends to be men. And so where women do hold places in greater numbers, it tends to be predominantly at the lower levels. And this means they're more likely playing a supporting role rather than one that is central to decision making, which really does a disservice, not just to the women themselves, but to these collective efforts to combat climate change, because you don't get vital representation and vital perspectives of what constitutes 50% of the global population. Um, and as we mentioned, those core perspectives and ideas and not just based out of vulnerability, but the powers that women have and the unique experiences and responsibilities and those, you know, core drivers that can act as huge propellants of effective climate policy and action. I will also just note that uh, this was the first meeting at COP26 in Glasgow where NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg attended. And this is the first time since the first COP took place in 1995. And while he was there, he highlighted climate security as a critical issue overall. And he identified climate as a crisis multiplier and said that it made the world a more dangerous place. And yet within the body of NATO, there has also been a lack of overall representation. And they found that 
while women's representation, particularly in civilian positions, has increased, they still primarily are working in support and administrative positions rather than in managerial and senior leadership. And so again, overall, where this alliance and these organizations are increasingly recognizing the threat of climate change to human and national security, and yet we're still seeing this lack of overall representation, particularly in the upper central decision-making bodies and positions overall. So there's a clear disparity where women are, as it's the case in many fields and in many sectors, women are increasingly held on the sidelines and in supporting roles and seen as effective agents of support rather than as effective agents of decision-making and change. Do you think differently, Laura? No, I completely agree with what Madeleine just said. And I just wanted to add something that is directly related to what Madeleine said about the kind of positions that women um, usually assume. This is not a problem that is just specific what, to climate policy in general, found in decision-making processes, but also in organizations in general. And I'm personally, I'm very fascinated with issues that have to do with management and with and creating structures inside the workplace. And one phenomenon that I find is very common as well is that the so-called responsibility without authority. And I think this is a problem that affects a lot of young people, not just women, uh, also men, but in many cases, women, in the sense that I see a lot of women being um, given responsibilities and doing a great, a great work, but then not having the corresponding authority that usually comes with sitting at the table, with performing uh, public facing work, with being the spokesperson, and also with making the final decisions. And in that sense, well, there is definitely way and there's also injustice in the workplace because the people that are actually doing all of the work uh, don't get the corresponding representation and recognition for what they're doing. Very relevant point you're raising here, Laura. Elizabeth? I'll jump back in here and say, um, yes, absolutely, Laura. Uh, why should uh, diverse voices be in discussions? It's a right. Everyone should be able to participate in discussions about things that impact them. And so, right, when people with different backgrounds, with different needs, knowledge and experience equally and meaningfully participate in these discussions, solutions are better and more sustainable. And uh, I would note from a different field, research on women's participation in creating policies and programs addressing peace and security. So research on the women peace and security agenda notes that, that this participation increases the likelihood that these policies and programs then better address issues that they intend to, issues uh, of direct concern for the women that are uh, at creating them. So, uh, yes, I would just jump in and add that different groups of people should be able to define and address risks and opportunities related to climate change and security as they experience them. When you talk about gender, we can notice that you also talk about the idea of power. Since the security sector is traditionally a man-dominated sector, how can we empower women, but also underrepresented groups, to overcome the power gap? Uh, of course, uh, of course, I, I see possibilities to to go beyond. Uh, I think obviously, like the more 
that um, the more women and generally like the more diversity we bring into into these rooms and the more we can move towards a different status quo. But I think it's really important, especially right now in this time of transition, to be mindful about the type, again, of cultures and of, of structures that we create. I mean, the problem with power and with inequalities um, and, and with uh, discrimination, as it has been said before in, during this conversation, is a problem of power. And we need to create different cultures and we need to create cultures. Um, I like this, um, this definition, I think it's by Brene Brown of like creating cultures of belonging. Like we need to create spaces where people can bring their true self and then, then they can create change. If we, for example, focus only on bringing enough women to the table or enough people of color to the table and we focus only on numbers. Although I think that's absolutely crucial. Like we need a critical mass of people to create change. But at the same time, if we continue to, like if we bring people to the table and then we force them in a way, either directly or indirectly to conform to the status quo and we don't put them in the position to be able to bring their true self and their full self to the table, then they will not be able to bring the transformational change that they actually have the potential to um to do so we i think we really need to act at the level of structure and we need to transform the policy making process into one that is comfortable with vulnerability with conflict with disagreement um with transformation and this might be a decision making process that is lower but bring us further. And I don't think we've been fast anyway when it comes to climate change so far. So we might as well just create some more space to, to do this. I would just like to quickly add to what Laura said to emphasize what I think is what you were saying as well is the importance of incorporating the diversity of perspective within that transformational change. And so particularly relating to ensuring that when you do bring a critical mass of women to the table or people of different races or ethnicities, that you are also bringing a critical mass of a diversity of perspectives within that. Because if we bring a critical mass, we achieve 50% representation of women, gender parity. As a technicality, that is fantastic. But at the same time, if those are all women from the global north or from certain regions who have different, but a level of uniformity within their experiences and their perspectives, we do a disservice to the efforts to have more comprehensive and holistic solutions and decision-making because we're leaving out a critical mass in a different way of those from other the global south from other regions from other perspectives and experiences and levels of resources and access and opportunities who will also serve as crucial agents of that transformative change so it's essential that we make sure that we're we're really emphasizing and ensuring true diversity within that thought and decision making uh yes i agree with both what Madeline and Laura said. And I would also bring in some points from the peace and security angle as well. So as Madeline said, women are underrepresented on the global level in uh, COP uh, agreements. And it's also uh, very similar if we look at peace agreements. So 
between um, 1992 and 2019, women only accounted for 6% of mediators and signatories of peace processes globally. So the lack of representation is paralleled on um, both the peace and security side and the climate change side. I would also add that there's research that um, notes that uh, yes, that women have been underrepresented as formal negotiators in the UNFCCC conferences, which is also arguably reflective of their representation at regional and national levels, as many top negotiators are also leaders in environmental decision making in their home countries. Say, for example, data from the IUCN notes that as of 2020, 15% of 712 environmental sector ministries across 187 countries were run by women. So the lack of representation may be reflected on multiple scales there. So now I'm going to call on your imagination and picture an international submit where you are in charge of inviting speakers. Who would you like to bring around the table? Well, for my side, uh, I'm not very creative, unfortunately, but one person that comes to my mind um, is Dana Meadows. And you might know her because she was um, one of the authors of the report, the famous report, Limits to Growth, that was published in the 1970s, um, commissioned by the Club of Rome. And she, she was a biologist, I think, by training. And she's one of the mothers of ecologism and of the thinking in systems method. And so I think I really appreciate our approach to climate change, our systemic thinking, the fact that we can't think about things in silos, that we need to consider the connections and really the impacts of everything. And this idea of uh, kind of like managing complexity in a way. And so I think she would definitely bring useful perspective to any conversation about climate security. But this is so hard. I mean, there are brilliant, brilliant authors and researchers doing amazing work on this. One person that comes immediately to mind is Dr. Asha Hans, who works on gender, disability, climate change, and peace and security. And I, I feel like I could go on. There's a list. <laughs> I think if you can bring in people who have the expertise in addressing either gender peace, gender climate, climate security, and being able to bring people from all facets of this field to put them together at a table, I think is a really important and valuable thing to do. And making sure that you're bringing people that have um, different identities, different backgrounds, different, different experiences with to contribute there. I can just quickly add in as well. I think from a policy perspective, Someone that I have greatly admired and would value the insight of is Christina Figueres, who was the highest ranked female um, holding a position for the UNFCCC. She held the top job for approximately six years, I believe, and it really culminated with the achievement of the Paris Agreement. And so in recognition of while there have been some deficiencies with that process and while we are not, it is by no means a perfect solution to the global climate emergency, I think that there were some critical achievements made in realizing that agreement and in implementing certain aspects of it that I think with her role in facilitating and navigating that negotiation 
landscape would be, you know, an essential viewpoint to have in the conversation. I also think that I would really want to emphasize broader participation from women members and leaders of indigenous and tribal groups overall, because I think that they bring such a vital perspective that is so often excluded or discounted or not appreciated. Overall, I think I would want to ensure that there was broader participation from those people who have an intimate understanding, a historical affiliation and association and recognition of the importance of the lands from which we all come and, you know, the the most effective ways that we can maneuver changing conditions to bolster human security, state security, and just broader social stability. Thanks to all of you for this great introduction to our podcast series on climate and security nexus. Laura, Elizabeth and Madeline, thank you very much for sharing your input on this topic. We hope you found this episode gripping and insightful. More to come on this mini-series, so stay tuned. To hear more on a diversity of international security topics, subscribe and listen to other episodes from Wise Brussels Voices channel on your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcast. You can find us on social media at Wise Brussels, on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. You can also visit our website to find more resources related to the topic in the link below. Thank you for being with us.